0: For today's introduction, as a point of contrast and inspired by Christine's 11th's last year, I'd like to begin in darkness um, and tell you about a Spanish term for the ominous quality inherent in beauty, for the existence of death and everything true, and for the utter blackness, pain, or element of blank, as Dickinson might write, that we respond to with an artistic explosion. The Spanish term is one day. Uh huh. Is your mic on? Oh, um. Actually, we're we're not. I don't have a mic right here. But can you guys not hear me? No. no really okay. I'll, I'll try and i ta- talk really loud. Here, I'll
1: come towards please.
0: Okay. The Spanish term for that is duende, and the poet Garcia Lorca writes a beautiful essay in which he explains that duende is not the, not in the throat. It surges up from the inside, from the soles of the feet. Now, as writers, we're all very, very familiar with these black, black sounds, with art that's fueled by messy breakups, hard work, war, loss, insecurity, and the nightmares we wake from again and again in a cold sweat, only to turn to the pen right by our bed and write it all down. But what about happiness? What about children, nature, rainbows? What about love? These reasons for which we battle our demons are equally real, equally necessary, and just as much a part of our lives, and our writing as their opposite. So today, Christine Hemp, who discussed the underworld last year, is here to suggest how we can approach the joyful things as writers without invoking, hopefully, the all-too-common skepticism and irony of our readers. Christine Hemp has most recently published poems and essays in... Fourth River, Pontoon, and Iowa Review, and we're very excited that she's a finalist for the Four Way Books Poetry Prize. So please welcome Christine. Good
2: morning. Last year was the Underworld, and uh, I have have a long term fascination with Orpheus and his journey to the Underworld and what that brought him and. Those of you who were here last year, fine. And those of you who weren't, that's fine too. Um, But this year, we're going to kind of go up into the sunlight. But um, Orpheus, as you know, was the fellow in Greek mythology who fell madly in love with Eurydice. And everything was lovely and groovy and wonderful. And then the day after their wedding, or the night of their wedding, actually, she got bitten by a serpent and was taken uh, very harshly into the underworld. And Orpheus... Made a deal um, with the underworld that he would go down and if he, he to go down to rescue her only if he didn't look back on the way up. Um, but we all know the end of that story, don't we? He had to leave Eurydice down below, and there are many poems that were written about that story um, that have fascinated me. Um, but today we're going to discuss what does that mean then? Um, this this deep underbelly. Okay. What about joy? As Carol pointed out, what is this, you know, my friend Sans Hall last year after she uh, heard my lecture, she said, well, that's great, Christine, you know, that's really great, but we all know about the dark, you know, we all know about darkness, and um, what about the happy ending? Can we write a successful happy ending or even a successful passage about beauty, love, happiness without it sounding (coughs) sentimental? Or being subject to the irony of—I um, I was glad that you mentioned that word, Carol. Irony, because I think we're in a particularly ironic time in America right now, in, and this is distinct from literature. But that—that that irony keeps us at a distance. We can always be the cool person, and you know, when when something—you know—perhaps teenagers carry a lot of irony these days, right? Um, they they keep things heavy eye rolling is what I call irony you know oh man you know you you know if anybody were to jump up in junior high school right and say oh it's such a beautiful day what would happen in the classroom <laughs> heavy eye rolling and really that's a, that's a good thing for balance but on the other hand irony can be a too much of a protection from those those celebrations. That are inherent in human experience just as much as the underworld. And I'm not here to sell happiness. I'm here to discuss what that means to us and how do we how do we find that balance. And of course, this this image here of the unified man, Albion, one of my favorite William Blake paintings, um, is his unified man. And of course, Blake, you know, he was filled with contraries. I mean, in everything from the execution of his art to his poems and and his um, his whole uh, passion in his life was to somehow unify the dark and the light. And in this case, Albion Man was, was the unification of his um, uh, belief that in order to understand one, you had to understand the other. And that's therefore, many of you know his songs of innocence and experience. Even his engraving technique was so cool. You know that he made the engravings and then he um, painted on top of them. But he did this cool weird thing, speaking of opposites. I mean, he knew about contraries. His technique to engrave was mostly, I don't know, are there any engravers here in, in the audience? Anybody who does engraving? Yeah, well, you, you, you take the dry point and you actually make a concave mark in the surface of the plate, right? And then you print it from that. Well, Blake, he was so wacky. I love it. He just did this other thing. He melted... Lead onto the plate, so it was a convex surface, and that was completely (laughs) different. What everyone was doing at the time, I just love that about him. I just feel that okay, he understood the nature of opposites, the you know the yin and the yang, and uh, it's like the Kenneth Rexroth poem that says the, the last two lines of his poem Yin and Yang say, "In the underworld, the sun swims between the fish called yes and no." Isn't that cool? I'll read it again. In the underworld, the sun swims between the fish called yes and no. And I think that is the that's the tension we're dealing with today. And and you know there, Elysium, the Greek place of what nineteenth century poets and everybody call heaven in a way, Elysium is the opposite of the underworld. But in a way not even in a way we can't have one without the other can we really and if you look at blake you'll see why look at even at the structure of this fabulous this is a frontispiece for his book of songs of innocence and experience and those of you who know those poems know that there's a balance of real dark poems and these sort of light poems and 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 you'll see here even in look at look at the figures here pressing up under the experience and the innocence and all these birds flying around the letters even the literal letters in his paintings become part of the structure of the painting. I just love that. So cool. Anyway, the next um, thing I want to talk about really is that in art, okay, we turn we turn to paintings in a way to understand this because seeing something helps us in terms of writing. I think sometimes writers, oh geez, I can't even go there yet. Yeah. Right writers sometimes forget that we're part of a larger artist community. That we belong to the whole community of painters and dancers and sculptors and musicians. That we are part of a larger larger fellowship than we give ourselves credit for. And that we have all five senses. Right? Yeah. Most of us have most of five senses. And all the senses are working toward that epiphany. And so I turn to, I always turn to paintings when I'm confused about something. So I, I'm thinking about this lecture, right? Okay, I've got to talk about happiness now. What am I going to do, right? All right, well, I turn to paintings. I think, well, what are paintings, what paintings are successful in dealing with the sublime? All right, now there's a very popular painter right now that you may recognize, a guy named Thomas Kincaid, this kind of uh, franchise painter who paints paintings... <laughs> Or has people paint them for him, and then he sells them at malls, and America buys them. Okay, he's very rich, so we can't make fun of him too much, right? No, but his paintings. There's something I want to compare. For example, here's one. You know, I think it's called Winter Evening. Um, and we look at them, we say, "Oh, that's kind of cozy and nice, right? Oh, there's a cozy little house. It meets all our needs for happiness." Such a lovely little place, and you can see why Americans and and people are drawn to a painting like this. But what's lacking in this painting?
1: <laughs> what? Liveliness. <laughs> Liveliness. L- 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 people. Action. <laughs> yeah. Action. Mm-hmm
2: interesting, but you all have your idea of what might be lacking, but there's something uncomfortable about this painting. And of course, in order to illustrate, we must always juxtapose, which is the funnest. Okay, look at this Edward Hopper painting of a house.
1: Shadows. There's no shadows.
2: There's shadows. The very structure of the painting, look at how, how the dark I mean, if you just look at it in an elementary way, the dark contrast to the lo- the white of the house and the feeling of those windows, and those of you who know Hopper, I mean, the windows are like eyes, always looking and blinking, and there's always something mysterious and something unsettling, right, about this painting. What is it? Can you put your finger on it? Dark shadows. Dark shadows. What is Edges. it? Edges. Edges, yeah. Two of the, two of the, rooms, the lights are out. One on. That's interesting too, isn't it? Yeah, the lights are out in two of the rooms. Now let's go back to Tom's, Kincaid's little cozy cottage here for a moment. <laughs> and this, <clears throat> really, we look at that next to something like Hopper and we think, you know, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't sustain me. It doesn't challenge me. And even if it's not real, even if it's, you know, I don't think it's reality we're looking at. We're looking at some element that makes our, our gut go, um, mm, right? And that the challenge of, of something like a Hopper painting, which seems to sustain us, but how funny, would we call that a happy painting?
1: Mm.
2: Not really. It's quite a lovely house, right? But there is a tension, and I think that all great art has a tension between that light and dark. It's always a struggle in great literature, and in great art of any kind, and that we ask ourselves, do we believe it? And I think that is a question we ask ourselves all the time in all the workshops that we're in. I often ask my students, "Do you believe that line?" I'm sure you've had a teacher ask you that. "Do you believe that?" Or is your bullshit detector
0: right? going?
2: Because when we, we look at Hopper's house, what we believe that. Why? You've seen it before or felt it before, right?
1: There's contrast.
2: There's contrast. Exactly. In composition, in color. It's really a wonderful picture. Um, I mean, even there, look at that house. It's alive. It's like a human. Right? With the eyes looking out there, your eyes, the windows again, the, the, the business about the, some windows blinking. But I think when, when I was talking to Sam Hall about this last night, we were talking about this in terms of the novel, for example. She said, you know, for me, I have to ask myself when I'm working on a novel or, or a story, is my happiness for my characters earned? And I think that's a really important point, too. Is it earned? Meaning, have we gone to the underworld, as we did last summer, and come back up? A new person. In fact, St. Teresa, a mystic of the 1500s, I I love it, she said, but she could be living right today, she said, uh, she says, if I can find her, she says, to reach something good, it is very useful to have gone astray and thus acquire experience. And she was a mystic, a seer, a a, a real visionary, and, and, of course, was later made a saint. But I think she's talking exactly about the Hopper House. To have a sense of experience, like Blake's Songs of Experience, then we can earn the sunlight and the radiance of the world. Another couple of pairings I'd like to make is in paintings. Here's another... Thomas Kincaid, it's, very, it's really hard to look at that, isn't it? In a way it's, all, it's almost so saccharine. It's like Hallmark cards, you know? It's sad because often people take secondhand emotions as the real thing. And greeting cards can be that way. Paintings can be that way. Language can be that way every day when we rely on cliché and sentimentality to say the emotions that are in us. It actually diminishes us as people. Because language is so powerful, when it's true, it can change the world. And yet when we rely on saccharin, we are making ourselves tinier. Here's a painting I love, the Hudson River School painters of the 19th century in America. It's just great. You know, they're so ecstatic about the sublimity of nature in their country. And, you know, Thomas Cole, who wrote, uh, who wrote this, he wrote this painting. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> lovely.
2: Great text, right? He, um, he was part of this group, and uh, this, this is Mount Holyoke over near Amherst, Massachusetts. and It's commonly called the Oxbow. It's always been one of my favorite paintings. One of the reasons, because when I first saw this painting in an art history class my sophomore year in college, I had never really been to New England, and I was so enchanted by this world that I just thought, my gosh, there are places that look like that. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, which is not quite so soft in its curves. and We don't have things really like oxbows. We have, you know, giant cedars and things like that, which seemed very boring to me when, at the time. But um, uh, this, this painting is a true expression of the Hudson River School's enchantment with America's power in nature sublime the beauty the joy but what what it's so interesting what Thomas Cole does to illuminate that this is a perfect example of what we're talking about look at this this fabulous lovely landscape green and beautiful the sun but over here we've got you know storm clouds brewing All these things happening, and even look at this fabulous snag coming right diagonally across the painting. And this looks like a little flock of birds kind of twittering away. And so he is actually showing that contrast of, yes, sublime nature, but there's a power and a deep rumbling underneath, right? And if you look very closely, ladies and gentlemen, you will see him in the painting too. He wanted to put himself in the pain, and there he is, looking out over the river with his little easel and kneeling down and drawing. And he's quite pleased with himself, I think. Isn't that a wonderful <laughs> painting? Don't you want to step into it? I think there's a really great Billy Collins poem about 15 years ago. I can't remember, but he wants to step over the velvet um, rope in front of a painting in the. Bro- it's called the Brooklyn Museum, and he s- he wants to step over the the rope and go right in the painting. I think that's what these Hudson River School painters. Do for me. You want to just go right in it. So there's a couple, th- those contraries are important in painting, um, but obviously they're really important in, in literature. And I want to read you a poem that many of you probably know, but one of my favorites of all time. I've never tired of it, which is, a, I think, a sign of sustainable art. How do you like that? You know how sustainable, you know, if something's sustainable in the green world. And it's called A Blessing, James Wright. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounds softly forth on the grass, and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely, they can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more they begin munching at the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slender one in my arms, for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white. Her mane falls wild on her forehead, And the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly, I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. (laughs) Now there is a poem of clear, unadulterated joy. But what has he done as Thomas Cole has done to the sublime? How has he made that poem believable and true? There word loneliness. There was loneliness in it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Any other things? Excellent. He mentions, he mentions darkness. doesn't he? It's almost as if the, at the edges of the poem you can see those shadows coming in. Yeah,
1: also he's breaking into
2: blossom. Yeah, oh, pray, I hadn't thought of that. Breaking into blossom. Not just mm-hmm. blossom.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: Breaking into blossom. And it's important, too, where he has placed that line about loneliness. He said, You know, they bow shyly as wet swans, they love each other, and then there is no loneliness like theirs. There we have the snag right across the Thomas Cole painting. Mm-hmm. So when we see that the shadow is necessary and we have to visit the underworld, um, that we can't have one without the other. We think, okay, so we have to go there, right? We have to address the underworld. And then we have to come up into the sunlight. How do we address sentimentality? How do we avoid Thomas Kincaid's trap? <laughs> right? How do we how do we get there? So my first dictum was we have to go to the underworld, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to disappoint you. You have to go there if you want the sunlight. I mean, William Blake said it, so I believe him, okay? Do you know that William Blake's wife said... He was a visionary, too. At One time at college, I was just so keen. Like, this was my life goal. I wanted... I wanted to be a mystic, okay? Like you go to school to be a mystic,
1: <laughs> you know? I
2: was just, you know, completely obsessed. I thought I got to read you know Saint John of the Cross and all these Eastern mystics and everything. I was just so excited about it. But then, then the more I got into it, it got a little frightening, you know? Like, ooh, you really have to go to the underworld. So I flittered around it a little bit, and maybe you know, being an artist is the closest thing to it. You know, you, you, you. you, you you, try, you have that little tiny little bit of something and, and you try to get there but the coolest thing about Blake, he didn't try anything he just was, right? He and his wife used to dance around naked in their garden it really great stuff happened to them in their lives even though he was wildly poor but he after his death his wife told somebody that he had, or no, before he died, his brother died his wife told that person that Blake had more conversations with his brother after he was dead than when he was alive. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, don't you love a person like that? Me, okay. I want to know more about this guy. You know, and he knew so much about this this marriage of contraries that most often his figures, not the Albion man there, but most often his figures in his paintings, were had no genitals. They were just they're just these sort of unified man woman. Things. It was, I was like, he, you know, that wasn't important. He just unified all of the opposites in his in his work. So anyway, you've got the first thing. You've got to go to the underworld. Second thing is, okay, what do you do with dirty laundry? Okay, what do you do to get the true feeling? How do you get that true feeling? Then you've gone to the underworld. How does happiness express itself? Right. And my second point of this three-pointed lecture today is that we turn to things. And you say, what? What do you mean? Let me give you an example. Yesterday on the way to teach my class, last night, I found three puzzle pieces on the sidewalk. And I thought, these are a clue. These are a clue to something. I don't really know what the clue is, but they are a clue. And I brought it to class, and last night... We wrote about those puzzle pieces, and my gosh, if they weren't the most dazzling pieces of writing to come out of a 10-minute free ride. Unbelievable pieces of writing about joy and suffering. But the puzzle pieces led us there. Right, Alfredo? Alfredo's <laughs> led him and his big toe into a shut grocery store door. Yeah. It's incredible how things can actually lead us there. Which leads me to the next poem called Love Calls Us to the Things of This World by Richard Wilbur. Another one of my favorite poems, and we'll see why. Ah, John Sloan painting, 1914, New York City, just for a moment. Love Calls Us to the Things of This World the eyes open to a cry of pulleys and spirited from sleep the astounded soul hangs for a moment bodiless and simple as false dawn outside the open window the morning air is all awash with angels some are in bed sheets some are in blouses some are in smocks but truly there they are now they are rising together in calm swells of halcyon feeling filling whatever they wear with the deep joy of their impersonal breathing. Now they are flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence, moving and staying like white water. And now, of a sudden, they swoon down into so rapt a quiet that nobody seems to be there. The soul shrinks from all that is about to remember, from the punctual rape of every blessed day and cries,
0: Oh, let there be
2: nothing on earth but laundry, nothing but rosy hands and the rising steam and clear dances done in the sight of heaven. Yet, as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body, saying now, in a changed voice, as the man yawns and rises bring them down from their ruddy gallows let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves, let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone, and the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits keeping their difficult balance now Wilbur's difficult balance is what we're all trying to do here, right all of us here, or we wouldn't be here It is that difficult balance of trying to take the things of our world, you know, and shape them into something. And if we're trying to shape them into art, it is a difficult balance. Trying to bring the underworld and the light of day into the same piece of writing. And Wilbur does it too. Where do we really see it in that poem? Where does the darkness come through in that poem? Excuse me? nun's clothing. The nun's clothing is really yeah. powerful for it's me in that poem, too. Yeah. Isn't there a difficult balance? Mm-hmm. But even the thieves, the thieves in the poem is wonderful, too. I love the thieves on the backs of thieves. Um, so the things of this world, the objects, can help us write about happiness. A puzzle piece, a piece of laundry, a coin you found in your left shoe, the dying cicada on the sidewalk. All those things, just because it's a dying cicada doesn't mean that it can't be a vehicle for you to write about your ecstasy. Right? All those things carry this little door for you to open up and go through. And I think of um, the things of this world. Artists, too, use the things of this world, not just as subject matter in their paintings, but this, ar- Dan Schmidt, a New York artist, has made these incredible paintings, uh, uh, acrylic on board paintings, and all of the, um, the uh, uh, acrylic on panel, and the patterns are from security envelopes, right? <laughs> and the shapes, all of them, are derived from commercial packaging forms. Right? Would you ever know that in a zillion years? But he uses envelopes and all these things to get these incredibly ornate designs. Beautiful paints. Look at that. Mm-hmm. Commercial packaging. The things of this world. Love calls us to the things of this world. And he makes these templates, too. He does these cutouts, so he paints behind them. That's one of my favorites there. Now, there is a perfect one to pair with Thomas Cole's painting of the oxbow. Look, you see the darkness and the light. It's almost a landscape painting right there. So, as William Carlos Williams says, there's no ideas but in things, right? And my students know that I'm 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 always giving them stuff to write about, going to their dresser drawer and making them grab three things out and making a poem or an essay out of that. But truly, if we have the ecstasy in our heart, right? if we have the feeling of elation, if we are just to write, oh, geez, I'm really happy, I feel so great, which we all do in our journals, because we can be boring in our journals, right? But if we're trying to make art what if we did turn to a packaging label, right? What if we le- turn to a label? What could a label, even the metaphorical—I'm just inventing that—but what could the metaphorical qualities of a label give us? There are many possibilities for that. What what might be yours? Oh, uh,
1: agenda.
2: Agenda. In, oh, interesting. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Definition of boundaries.
2: Definition of boundaries. Yeah. With addresses, you know, and zip codes. He could do a whole thing with zip codes. Mm-hmm. That would be fun, wouldn't it? To be doing a whole essay on zip codes. Or a whole poem on zip codes. Okay, that's what you have to do today. whole essay on zip codes. <laughs> um, so those things are, are something that can give us a door in so we go to the underworld we use the things of this world I mean what were the things in James Wright poem How did it, this poem by the way was a, a dedication to Anne Sexton who he was deeply in love with and he used to call her blessing and so the name of that poem I read to you about the horses is called a blessing but right now you heard that a few minutes ago you could name a bunch of objects in that poem what were they? Horses, and he called them something, he called them Indian ponies, didn't he? Yeah. 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 Uh He was specific about that. What other stuff is in that poem? Barbed wire. Barbed wire, yeah. Green grass, and that beautiful, the girl's wrist. I think that's one of the most beautiful images in the whole poem, because of the delicacy of the horse's muzzles, the delicacy of, and of course it's a love poem. What isn't a love poem? You know, that wouldn't, Didn't Yates say that everything <coughs> eventually becomes a, a love poem? So how are you doing so far with all this? You're a little quiet. You're not even really <laughs> very ecstatic. How is, how's the ecstasy going for you?
1: <laughs>
2: like, should we get up and do one of those um, sort of ecstatic, roomy kind of dances? You know, the Sufis getting that kind of... See, that's what I wanted to do. You know, I thought, you know, I want to figure this out. You know, when I was 18, I thought I'd get to do, you know, ecstatic dancing and all that. Maybe I just grew up in the wrong country or something.
1: (laughs) I think ecstasy is is really interesting. Both the poems you've read, kind of going against the things moment, have breaking out of the body. The first one breaks out. I don't need to spoil your third point if you're going to get there. And then the moment of the soul rising. But ecstasy, then, is is, the ecstatic is somehow something out to the physical balance.
2: How did you know that I was going to get to that in my third? What's your Sorry.
1: name? <laughs> Are you a visionary? I'm a playwright.
2: Are you? Good. What's that's your name? Dean. Dean. How do you do? You know, sure. this is the perfect moment, Dean, since you're a playwright, to bring in this moment of, of Orpheus, because um, I'm getting. that's an excellent point about ecstasy, because I saw at the Seattle Children's Theater, I live in four towns in Washington, and I take my niece to the theater, and And I saw this fabulous play by John. Oh, you guys from Minneapolis probably know who he is. His name is... Olive, thank you. Yeah, John Olive. It's his rendition of James... Not James and the Giant Peach. I loved that story, too, though. Didn't you love that story? Jason and the Golden Fleece. (laughs) (laughs) Close, but no cigar. Sounds like... Right. Okay great play you know i went with celia rose my niece and she's 10 now she was 9 she's just you know all a flutter we're all excited about the play and i'm thinking okay children's theater it was one of the most moving pieces of theater i've seen in a long time it was unbelievable three characters hercules jason who's off to find the peach the fleece
1: <laughs> and
2: orpheus who is a but at, at that point he's a budding poet he's before he gets grown up and you know, falls in love with Eurydice and heads downtown, you know. So it is a, a, an extraordinary play, not only because of the way it's um, blocked and everything, they're moving around the stage on this fabulous boat. It, essentially, it's kind of a, an uh, od- odyssey like Odysseus. He has to go find the fleece to make sure he's the true, you know, leader and, and all this. But, but the point, my point is, Orpheus, <coughs> as the young poet in this play, he, is, he breaks out of his body, in a sense, is that he is the visionary when they're in really deep trouble. They're in a big, 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 sort of narrow, horrible, scary place in their boat. They're all on a boat. And, um, you know, the other guys think it's all over, right? Which we always do. We always think, you know, it's all over. Like, this is the end. How many have ever thought that? Okay, come on. How many have never thought that? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's all over. Everything I ever wanted is gone and blah, blah, blah. okay. So wait a minute, right? Okay, so um, they're on the boat, and, and Orpheus is, he t- and, you know, Hercules is so bummed out. He, he, And then Jason tells Orpheus to take the tiller of the boat, right? So Orpheus says, well, okay, you know, he's the poet. Kind of, well, all right, let me think about that for a minute. And Her- Hercules says, he's just crazed, you know, don't you understand we've discovered what this world really is? A prison enclosed by an endless wall of cold blank stone. There's an existential statement, right? Orpheus says, no. We've seen it, and now we're doomed to go insane because we know the horrible truth. Orpheus, this world is not a prison. It is. No. There's something underneath, inside this world, something magic. No, says Hercules. Orpheus says, if all this is a cold stone prison, then why can we imagine a world filled with gods where golden rams can fly? There is magic everywhere. You're going to tell me Zeus is sending a gigantic eagle to scoop us up in his talons and carry us to Colchis? Why not? This world burns with godfire.
1: That's what I'm, you know,
2: I'm the poet.
1: Yes! You know.
2: And Celia's sitting there like this. It was just an amazing moment. Of course, there's a great little moment of undercut. Are you ready? Jason says,
1: I can feel it.
2: And Orpheus says, thank you. No, I mean, I can really feel it. Can't you? A current, a strong current. And then the current takes them away, right? They, they get out of that scary place. So it's really undercut by humor, which, of course, humor too can get us to that place of happiness. But Orpheus, back, tell me your name again. Dean. Dean. Orpheus, in a way, breaks out of his body, too. He can see some kind of magic, some kind of ecstasy. Wait a minute, he says. This world is filled with godfire. I mean, it just—it was just a shivery moment, because we're so worried for them, you know? They're going to drown, and of course the world was coming to end, and then all of a sudden, the flow of the, the tide takes them out to safety. So... We've got the things of this world, stuff, right, that can help us attach ourselves to or not even attach ourselves, help us find our way to expressing those emotional states. But the third point, Dean, that I'm getting to, is that when we do so, going to the underworld, examining that, the underbelly of joy, And using the things of this world to hang on to, to help us see those. The third point, I realized, is that we must push ourselves through that membrane to find an even larger meaning beyond that experience. Now let me illustrate that for a moment. Well, maybe I'll illustrate it with a poem that I wrote about Will you indulge me? Because I wrote a poem about Eurydice. Okay. Now, the the woman who you know is in the underworld now, and Orpheus had to leave behind. But I can only say from my own experience that this is how I push through to that next level. Now, what I loved about this story for years and years and years was how true their love was. Right? Orpheus and Eurydice. T- totally true. Totally beautiful. He's even risking his life to go down and rescue her from the underworld. I just thought, that's where I dwelled on this story. But when I started writing about <coughs> it, I found a different, kind of a scary thing about that love. So I was in, into the ecstasy of the love, but when I wrote the poem here, I found out something else. And it's in her voice, okay? It's just called Eurydice. And she's talking from the underworld, okay? I didn't want to come back. I loved him, yes, but after the wedding, the wine and figs, the merging of our flesh, he wanted to show me off to the forests and fields. They loved him too, thirsty for his notes. The lyre trembled when it brushed the leaves. Let me tell you that he was a musician. You do you knew that though, right? He was not only a poet, but he was a musician. <coughs> I'm going to start over. He was a musician that played such beautiful music and such poetry that even vegetation responded to him. Okay, I didn't say that before. I didn't want to come back. I loved him, yes, but after the wedding, the wine and figs, the merging of our flesh, he wanted to show me off to the forests and fields. They loved him, too, thirsty for his notes. The lyre trembled when it brushed the leaves. The grasses hissed with pleasure. I begged him not to take me too far into the glade. Marriage, after all, was new to me. And those talking trees and blades, I wanted to go home. My beloved paused, the wind breathed in. All of nature waited for the braided cord. That's when I said, no more, and ran across the meadow, tipsy and confused, just as dusk had slithered in the shade. My bare feet. I'm used to such terrain throbbed. I thought I knew the way, but I stumbled and was lost. My dress ham my dress ham ripped and stars began their chatter overhead. You know what happened next. Let's fast forward to the grave and what I felt when I went under, vipers poison turning into heady brew. It wasn't what he told you. I was no hostage the darkness gathered and released me. With each step downward to the sticks, confusion waned. I no longer worried that I'd lose him to the crowds of fawning fans whose devotion to his melodies I could not match. I wouldn't have to bear those taut adagios, each pluck of the string that made me ache and bend for more, just like those trees, a slave to utter harmony didn't that poem surprise me (laughs) so much for true love right but when you push through that membrane to something else from the joy I discovered that her joy was being released from this Orpheus. It's my rendition of the story as you know, Sands Hall again always says, according to me she (laughs) according to me I changed the story, but you can too right? But what the happiness of that love suddenly, and I wrote that poem soon after I was married for heaven's sakes (laughs) but it wasn't about me it was about joy maybe in my own marriage leading me to a a voice inside this character to a new kind of truth that maybe some partners aren't for us or maybe that love she found a release from Orpheus you know his fame and his fortune his glitteriness and everybody loving him even the trees she found a release but I had no idea I was going to write that Mm -hmm. and you too can go on that little adventure Pushing through the membrane. Does that make sense, Dean? So that you're you're reaching a new understanding of something. You visit the underworld, you use these objects for expressing that, and then you say, okay, what can I do beyond this? I right, take a piece of paper right now, blank piece of paper on both sides. Blank, 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 blank. Do you get that word? Blank, blank, blank. only and I'm going to time you, okay, three minutes, you're going to make a list, only a list, okay, it can be phrases, but just a list of utter and unadulterated joy, things associated with that joy, it might be a love affair, the pink sweater that smells like <laughs> London fog, I don't know, a whole list, one, two, three, go, three minutes, a list, of things that have to do with unadulterated joy. Okay, turn your paper over, please. Make a list of things that are in the underbelly of that joy. The black marks of Dan's painting. A list of the underbelly of that joy or another joy. The scab on your knee that won't heal. The way your lover sniffs drives you crazy.
1: It doesn't have to be,
2: it could be. stop now my challenge to you sometime in the next 24 to 48 hours is to write a poem, an essay or a story or a scene or a character that is a scene about joy and love that includes all those things okay but that you will find that is a scene of joy but it has to include all those things on the back side of joy It may turn into a love poem. It may turn into uh, a a tribute to somebody. It (coughs) It may be an exploration into what it means to break out of the body, as Dean said. But that is my challenge to you. The backside of joy is the thing that holds it up. And I will illustrate that That's a good line. I just made that up, by the way. (laughs) It wasn't planned. The back side of joy is what holds... What did I say? No, it's what holds it up. up. Yeah, must write that down. (laughs) And here's a list poem for you, one of my favorites by Tony Hoagland called The Word. Down near the bottom of the crossed-out list of things you have to do today, between green thread and broccoli, you find that you have penciled sunlight. Resting on the page, the word is beautiful. It touches you as if you had a friend and sunlight were a present he had sent from someplace distant as this morning to cheer you up and to remind you that among your duties, pleasure is a thing that also needs accomplishing. Do you remember that time and light are kinds of love? And love is no less practical than a coffee grinder or a safe spare tire? Tomorrow you may be utterly without a clue, but today you get a telegram from the heart in exile proclaiming that the kingdom still exists, the king and queen alive, still speaking to their children, to anyone among them who can find the time to sit out in the sun and listen. I'd like to... Tony Hoagland. H-O-A-G-L-A-N-D. I'd like to end um, my talk today with two things that Tony Hogan's poem talks about here, Whoever Can Sit and Hear. And these pieces are by an artist friend of mine named Anne Herendell She's a sculptor, a ceramist. And these, here's a little development of her work towards joy. She has now moved into color. And these vessels are not only primary colors that leap out at you from the wall, but they are saved from sentimentality by what? Look at that, the darkness in the edges. And the music that I played for you this morning was by um, a flute player, the best flute, Irish flute player in the world, in But I'd like to end by playing you a tune as well. And in Irish music, Celtic music, there is such a marriage of that light and dark. that My brother once called it, I love that music because it has a wild melancholy. I love that marriage of terms. And listen carefully if you can see both sides of that. These are two tunes, one called uh, Dunmore Lassies and the other is called uh, Billy Cooley's Reel.
1: Thank mm-hmm. you.